Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this with tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. Also, please visit and like my Facebook fan page. Go to Facebook and search I Am Turkey Hunting. And also feel free to post your turkey hunting photos from this past season and let us know where and when you killed your bird. For all of you Twitter users out there, please follow me on Twitter where my handle is at turkeyhitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 144, Cooking Wild Turkey with Scott Lasath. And I am your host and the guy who is still working on the house and has yet to put his boat in the water. But as I've been telling you, that list of to-dos around the house is getting done and shorter and more items marked off. And I'm about to mark off painting the house. I'm about to mark off resodding the front yard. And once I do that, my exterior projects my major exterior projects are done and I'm trying to squeeze in that fishing trip for the weekend so we shall see how that turns out and I'll let you guys know next week if I was able to hit the water so today we are 231 days 14 hours 17 minutes and 30 seconds away from opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama And before we get into this week's show, I want to read a tweet, actually a direct message I got on Twitter, from Tyler Brown. And Tyler says, Andy, I'd first like to say I love listening to your show and I'm a pronounced turkey hunting addict. I'm embarking on my journey next year of trying to kill one in every state and I'm proud to say you inspired me. I'm proud to hear that I inspired you, Tyler. It's going to be a great time. You're going to enjoy doing that. And Tyler says, So I've been doing lots of research, and I have hunts set up next year in Florida and Minnesota, both for different reasons. I am also from Alabama. I live in Mobile, and I have done all of my hunting thus far in state. I like your idea of joining clubs in adjoining states, but I was wondering if you had any rhyme or reason as to which states you hit from year to year. I was also wondering if you like that 20 gauge. That's what I'm thinking about going to with all the advancements in TSS, specifically Apex. Any feedback would be much appreciated. Thanks, bud. Tyler, thank you so much for your direct message on Twitter. For those of you who don't know, I much prefer Twitter over Facebook. The drama on Twitter is limited to so many fewer characters than the drama on Facebook. So there's less drama to be had on Twitter, and I love the brevity of the tweets and the information that comes through there. So I get your messages on Twitter, 
much quicker than I do messages on Facebook. I rarely check messages on Facebook. And for those of you who have messaged me on Facebook in the past few months, well, you probably already know that I rarely check messages because I was returning messages from May just this past week. So if you want to reach me, I much prefer you either email me at andy at iamturkeyhunting.com or you send me a DM on Twitter where my handle on Twitter is at turkeyhitman, H-I-T-M-A-N, at turkeyhitman. So, Tyler, the answer to your question of is there any rhyme or reason as to why I pick the states that I pick? Right now, there is some method to the madness in how my buddies and I pick states that we want to hunt next year. First thing is we try to find an area where we can hit a couple of adjoining states each year. That way, we can at least get the opportunity to mark off two states from the list. If we're successful in those two states, then we can possibly get a third state in, much the way we did North Dakota, South Dakota, and Montana about three or four years ago. So that's the first thing that we look at. The second thing that we look at is this. I'm 46 years old, and I am not old by any means, especially especially mentally. So over the past 10 or 15 years, I've recognized that I can still do a lot of the things that I could when I was younger, but I don't recover from them as quickly or as easily as I used to. And I also acknowledge now that I'm getting older that I'm not guaranteed tomorrow, nor am I guaranteed my health tomorrow either. So because me and my buddies are still physically able and willing to walk up and down mountains chasing turkeys, we are trying to mark off the list those states that are more mountainous than others. So right now we're focused really on going out west and tackling the mountainous states there. And it was interesting this year that we just about unanimously picked Idaho and Washington as the states that we wanted to hit. our trip for next year. So when we started on this venture, on this quest of completing the Super Slam, it really was more or less just where we were interested in going. It wasn't that we had any real incentive in choosing a location other than we wanted to extend our hunting season. And that still factors in a little bit, I think, in our decision of where we go. But we're getting to that point to where Pretty much every state that we're going to go to from this point on is going to have a longer, I can't say longer, is going to have a later running turkey season than we have here in Alabama. So the opportunity of extending our season is usually not much of a consideration in choosing where we go to hunt turkeys the following year, but it does factor in a little bit. And so I would recommend to everyone out there who wants to get started on a super slam to really look at those areas of the country where there are birds, huntable populations of birds in states that border one another and have seasons that run similar to one another so that you can possibly mark off two or three of those states at a time. The second thing that you wanted to know, Tyler, is how I like that 20 gauge. 
So the only thing I don't like about my 20 gauge is this. I still have not named her. That's it. I really like everything about that gun. It has a short barrel, so I can maneuver it in the woods very easily. It is extremely light. With the new recoil pad I have on there, it absorbs a good bit of the recoil from shooting those magnum shells. And the pattern out of that gun, it's unreal. So there's nothing I don't like about it. And it sounds like you listened to that episode when I had Apex Ammunition on the show. And in the way that their ammo performs and the way that that TSS shot performs, you're getting more pellets downrange. You're getting more killing power, more penetration with a smaller pellet by shooting TSS than you would shooting a 12 gauge with over-the-counter loads. So really, there's no reason not to shoot a 20 gauge. And like I said in the show with Apex Ammunition, I will not be putting my 12 gauge Black Death in the gun safe to stay forever. But I probably will be buying some TSS shotgun shells for Black Death and probably will back down from shooting those three and a half inch shells to shooting some either three inch or two and three quarter inch 12 gauge TSS shells out of her. I like Black Death. And as soon as I name that 20 gauge, I'm going to like her even more. All right, we're going to jump into today's show. I've got to get back outside on a boom lift and get some painting done. I had some rotten fascia board and some rotten soffit on the front of my house from a gutter that was leaking for a long period of time. And I got that repaired and I've got to get up there and get that painted. So we're getting into the show. I've been wanting to get Scott Laysath back on the show for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, he is just genuinely a nice guy. And he really truly has a desire to teach all of us how to cook our wild game so that it's tastier and more enjoyable. Secondly, I am always looking for better ways to prepare and cook wild turkey, and I know you guys are too. So without any further delay, here is the sporting chef, Scott Laysath, and I'll see you guys on the other side. Hey everybody, I am glad to tell you that I've got on the line with me today Scott Laysath. And Scott, as you know, if you listen to about episode 6 or 7 or 8 of this show, and if you never watch TV and you never read books and you never see the internet, then you know from listening to my show that Scott is the sporting chef. But you probably know him from his own show and from his cookbooks and from the internet. And I'm glad to have Scott on the phone because I know that you guys listening have turkey in your freezer that we need to cook. Because deer season's coming up and dove season's coming up. It's going to be time to hunt those pheasants and all other game, elk and all that fun stuff. And we need to make some room in the freezer and we're going to do that today or at least learn how we can do that today and make our taste buds happy. Scott, how are you and where are you today? I'm good, man. I am in Northern California, and 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 as always, I have to make sure that I I say that it's Northern California, not the one you see on TV. And it's good to be home. I I spend a lot of time on the road, and so I'm always happy when I'm home. Good deal. Well, Northern California is not the California that's going to fall off of the United States, is it? Uh, <laughs> well, there are some people that would like parts of California to fall off in the United States. We actually, there's a group here 
in Northern California that are trying to get Northern California to secede from the rest of California and call it the state of Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure they're going to get the job done, but yeah. I think as far as the fault line goes, I think and I'm around Sacramento, so I think we're relatively safe. Okay. So. All right. Well, that's good to hear. So I asked you this question when I did the interview with you a while back. That's been about three years ago that we did our first interview. And so give me a little refresher and everybody else listening. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into cooking and how you got into turkey hunting as well. Well, I, you know, I grew up in Virginia as a kid. We had, we were one of the few states that actually had turkeys. Mm-hmm. And we would go, our standard deal in the spring was to go spring gobbler and opening of trout season uh, weekend, um, except in Virginia, you couldn't, you couldn't hunt. And still, I think in a lot of places in Virginia, you can't hunt on Sundays. So that kind of made it a little difficult. But just close by, I mean, I had turkeys within half hour, 45 minutes of me. When I was going to school, I was working as a bouncer. And somebody said, the manager said, you want to be a manager. So I got a two-week training course on how to be a cook, bartender, and manager. Got sent from Tucson to Phoenix. And thus began my restaurant career, ended up being vice president of the 33-unit chain. Um, Always cooked, always hunted, and it's always been a passion of mine. I remember the first game animal I killed was a jack snipe, and I brought it home and cooked it for about an hour and a half. And it was really, really bad, and yet I didn't want to let on my two older brothers for making making fun of me for turning this thing into a completely burnt piece of charcoal, mm-hmm. and it tasted really bad. But uh, I've since learned that there's there are easier ways to cook a jack's knife and everything else, and I'm very fortunate to be able to cook fish and game for a living. I mean, uh, one of the things I, I just got done on Sunday, I was in Indianapolis feeding venison sloppy joes to some homeless folks there we have a program called hunt fish feed with sportsman channel that i've been the executive chef for 10 years where we've fed over 90 shelters military shelters homeless veterans places like that where we're feeding them wild hogs and venison and salmon and things like that and so that's awesome in addition in addition to having the sporting chef tv show on sportsman channel I get to do some pretty good stuff. I get it's it's fun. Yeah, yeah, that's got to be very rewarding. And you know, don't let the antis hear that we hunters are out there doing good things. No, you know, and and there's you can't argue when we're feeding the homeless folks. We're not getting nobody's protesting that, right? That's right. When when we're you know when we've got hunting organizations and sportsmen's organizations that are donating hundreds of pounds of meat to feed five or 600 people at a time, mm-hmm. nobody's saying, I can't believe they're doing that because yeah. um, they can't. They don't have a leg to stand on. Yeah. You know, one of the local homeless shelters here in Birmingham, when I was, I remember being in high school and in college, when we would clean out our freezer, we would take the venison that we had left over from the season because we, at that time, were killing quite a few deer a year, and I'm not going to say how many it was. But it just turned out to be more than we could eat. So we would take it to the homeless shelter or one of the homeless shelters here in Birmingham. And they would welcome us with open arms when we would come in there. Oh, these guys, these guys are going to be so excited. And, you know, thank you for bringing this in. Now, this is unprocessed meat. Well, right. things have evolved, and it went from, well, we can't take your unprocessed meat to, okay, we can take your processed meat, 
And then it went from, well, you can't even take your processed meat that's uncooked. If you cook it and you have leftovers, you can bring it. And now, with all the regulations and health department and all that stuff, you can't even do that. They won't even take it cooked for you to bring it it's, left over. You know, it's got to be It's crazy. That's, I don't know if that's a county thing or a state thing in Alabama. We've got... We've run into that. The single largest source of protein that's uh, donated to shelters in Virginia is deer meat donated by hunters. They welcome it with open arms. Thank you. And, and we did one in New Jersey after Hurricane Sandy, and the state said, don't ever do that again. Wow. It was not USDA inspected meat. Yeah. Now, uh, I, I feel, don't you feel safer now that you got somebody protecting you from this? Having to eat that horrible deer meat? Absolutely, yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. I, I I can't tell you how many times I've gotten food poisoning off of USDA inspected meat. Right. And I can right. I can tell you how many times I've gotten food poisoning off of venison or wild That's turkey zero. or any other game right. that right. I've taken. Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. So yeah, well. That's what we have to deal with, and unfortunately, you know, the the men and women in the homeless shelters are the one that are the ones that are getting, uh, I guess, the short end of that deal. Uh, from well, and for folks that aren't in such a, res- a restricted area too, they should. I want to encourage them to contact their churches, food banks, shelters, and and you know, they don't want you to drop a deer off on the back patio. Yeah. But if you can get it broken down and processed, a lot of, you know, ground is probably what they can use the most of. Mm -hmm. And we often grind way too much of our deer anyway. Um, And so contact them. Let them know you've got it packaged. It's frozen. You can hang on to it. And I'll bet you you can find a place that will take the meat from you. Yeah, yeah. Very good advice. So I've got a question for you that. I usually say for the end of the show, but I want to hit it now before you and I get down to the nitty gritty here and start talking some actual cooking and recipes and brining and all sorts of fun stuff like that that we're going to talk about. But tell us where we can find the Sporting Chef, the show, and your cookbooks, and if you've got anything new coming down the pipe anytime soon. You know, the Sporting Chef show is on Sportsman Channel January through June. Um, You can get it on My Outdoor TV, the uh, Outdoor Sportsman Group, which is Outdoor Channel, Sportsman Channel, and World Fishing Network. They have a new app, My Outdoor TV, and I know the first week is free, but there is something like 10,000 episodes from all those networks on this app that you can watch anytime. I have a Sporting Chef YouTube channel that's all broken into parts and different people that are on the show that's real easy to watch. Cookbook, my current cookbook is the Sporting Chef's Better Venison Cookbook. It's easiest to get on Amazon. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple of older ones on there too, but the venison book is my favorite right now. If you go to the website, the Sporting Chef website, there's enough recipes there to hold you for a long time. You don't have to buy anything. If you go there, sign up for the newsletter. We send you new stuff all the time. Don't We don't want your information. We're not going to sell it to Russia or anything else. We just want you to... <laughs> We just want to stay connected to you. So I'm easy to find. I'm, I'm on a lot of other people's shows all the time. I'm the cooking editor for DU Magazine. So if you're a duck hunter, I'm always in there. And I've put some other publications around the country. But sportingchef.com, if you're just looking for a bunch of recipes, it's there and it's free. Yeah, good deal. Well, and I think I I need to probably tell the story again about how I first met you. And I know you've only met probably about... 20,000 people since you and I met because it's been about 15 years ago. But 
you actually did a demo in Birmingham, and a friend of mine and one of his co-workers hired you to come in and, and cook some wild game for us. And that really opened my eyes because, well, we got to try a lot of stuff. That's the best rabbit I've ever had in my life that you cooked, by the way. Oh, good. Um, I don't think I'd ever had a pheasant before you cooked one. I had rattlesnake before, but it was pretty good. You didn't cook anything bad. I, I, nothing in there was bad, but it was, it was, you were combining ingredients that, with this wild game that I never would have thought to have pulled out of the refrigerator and cooked with wild game. And it really was eye-opening for me, and it was a great experience. And I encourage anyone who has the opportunity to come to any of your demos or your tastings that they do that because they will not regret that. That was awesome. Well, well, you know, and you'll you notice that I don't, even though they might have been ingredients that you didn't think you, you wouldn't have used, but it was in there. It was pretty basic stuff that you can find in just about it any was. refrigerator. Yeah. I don't. I'm not trying to outchef anybody. I'm not looking for the latest free range obscure ingredient. I want my, you know, my animals are free ranging, right? So I, I don't. You're, you don't have to go Google whatever ingredient it is and find out what was he just talking about. Yeah. Um. You know, you use you use animals that are in good shape. You use produce that's in season, and you don't overcook it. And for the most part, things are going to turn out pretty good. Very true. Yeah. Yeah, there. I don't think there was a single ingredient that you used that I would have had to have ordered off the internet and gotten shipped to me from some foreign country I can't pronounce. Who knows where? Right. Yeah. Right. So it, it was all. All the ingredients were very readily available, and so that was pretty cool. So let's jump in here. I, I actually got this question from a listener back in January, believe it or not, and I remembered it because. Heck, I want to know it. So a friend of the show, a really good friend of the show, Bob Smith in Pennsylvania, he asked, what is the easiest way to remove the silver sinew that is around each turkey breast, that covers each turkey breast? Is there an easy way to do that? You know, I just use a thin bladed, sharp, small knife, not a big chef's knife. Mm -hmm. And I will put it with that sinew side down on a uh, cutting surface and then bevel the knife towards that sinew side so that you're not taking a bunch of meat off. And it, it usually slides right off. If you leave a little bit of it, that, that silver skin on the outside is going to go away for the most part. And a, what it's, what's easier a lot of times than, than removing that sinew is if you get a, there's a tenderizing deal, a Victor makes one, Jacquard makes another one, mm -hmm. and it's got these stain, flat stainless steel blades. Uh, there's three rows of them, and it's spring-loaded, and it pushes down, in the, and it just basically cuts through the connective tissue of, the, of a turkey breast, mm -hmm. but it doesn't, make, doesn't turn it into hamburger. It doesn't make it look any different, doesn't feel any different, but what it does is it's going to put cuts in that sinew also so that when you brown it, it's basically going to disintegrate, but you know, there's there's a grisly line that's about on the where it connects to the body right. um, that I like to remove too. That's a little bit more pronounced than that outside sinew. Mm -hmm. I normally work that around too, because, and I and on a bigger bird, I'm going to butterfly the breast anyway because I want it to be about half as thick as it is. Because if you're cooking a whole turkey breast, especially a big old tom, it's thick. And so by the time you get the inside until it's just right, about 145 degrees, the outside is going to be dried out. So if you butterfly it, 
so that it's half its normal thickness, it's a lot easier to control the temperature inside and outside. And as we've probably mentioned before, the thicker it is, the slower you want to cook it. The more time you want to take to cook it, because if you rush it, you're just going to have this dry outside before you get to the moist inside. Okay. All right. Now, are you using a meat thermometer when you cook turkey? You know, I don't, but I think okay. other people, other people that are you that are have had experiences with dry turkey, I highly recommend a meat thermometer. I can push down on it and tell and tell how it's cooked. Right. Just like you know, a, a guy that's working a steakhouse, steak. yeah, he's not cutting holes in the steak and looking inside and going, "Well, that's medium rare." Mm-hmm. He knows what medium rare feels like. If you're worried about salmonella and you know chicken related things, don't. Um, if your turkey is a little bit underdone it's for you, you can always throw it back in the oven, but you can't True. uncook it. So, you know, a, a pop-up thermometer on a domestic turkey comes out at about 185. If you do 185 wow. on, a deme- on a wild turkey, it's sawdust. Yeah. I go 145 to 155 on my wild turkey, but then I'm going to let it rest for a little while, and I always cook it in parts. I don't cook whole turkeys because that just, just doesn't make any sense. But again, if it's 145 in the center, um, and there's, we can talk about all sorts of different ways to do it. Um, nothing, nothing bad is going to happen. Everything dies. Okay. And are we kind of semi defeating the purpose of putting of what we're trying to achieve when we put that meat thermometer in the turkey breast, and now we've punched a hole in it, and those juices are starting to drain out? Or are we not going to lose? It's not going to drain out. Okay. You're basically just going to affect where you put that thermometer in isn't going to drain the whole breast. It's that little pocket where you put it in, it's going to, it's, there's going to be some juice coming out of it. Mm-hmm. But if you don't overcook it, that turkey's not going to be dry. Okay. The, the, the normal course of the conversation, we're going to talk about brine at some point, mm-hmm. and, and I'm, I'm going to tell everybody why they should brine their turkeys. Let's do it now because that is actually the next question on my list. So you introduced me to brining three years ago, brining wild turkeys. Right. Three years ago when, when we did the show then, and now I'm brining all of my birds that I cook, whether it's doves <laughs> or right. turkeys or chicken from the store, whatever it happens to be, because it makes a huge difference. I'm really blown away and kind of upset that I went all those years cooking wild turkey and not knowing how big of a deal brining is for the flavor of the turkey and, and the tenderness as well. And I'm using really a basic saltwater brine. I, I mean, it's just that. It's salt and water. That is it. Right. So am I missing out on a little bit of something for my taste buds by not spicing up or sprucing up my brine? Well, you can add flavor to it. And, and I have a sponsor of the show, High Mountain Seasonings. It makes a gourmet game bird and poultry brine that has a little bit of sodium nitrite in it. It's got some more flavor in it. But it makes a big difference. If if you use, say, with a half a gallon of water, add to a half gallon of water, add a half a cup of kosher salt or any kind of coarse salt, and you're going to need to heat up some of that water to dissolve the salt. Um, I also use a half cup of brown sugar, but you can add all sorts of dry seasonings to that. Just don't dilute the half cup of kosher salt or coarse salt to a, a half a gallon of water ratio. That's the ratio where the brine will pass through the turkey um, and it's going to add moisture. It's going to add flavor. It'll cook faster because it's added moisture to the inside. It'll be much less likely to dry out. 
And I don't care if it's like you say, a chicken, a quail, a pheasant, a chucker, a domestic turkey. If you brine it, brining is that simple. And I've talked to people about brining for decades, and uh, and they'll say, no, I still haven't done that yet. And I'm thinking, just soak it in salt water. Yeah, it's gonna make such a big difference as long as you use the right ratio of water and salt. And like you said, if it if all you use is is a coarse salt and water. It will make your turkey taste better, and it'll be it'll be more juicy. Yeah. So why doesn't everybody do it, right? You're exactly right. Why do they resist? I don't know. Uh, I will not. I will not cook another turkey, and I'm not cooking any chicken from the store without brining it first. And when I brine, I brine, I brine every one of them. Yeah. Yeah. When I brine chicken and throw it on the grill. I'm not worried about watching the grill. And my wife is right. like, you're going to burn that chicken, and I'll pull it off, and the skin will be burned. And she's, you burned it. Well, pull the skin off of it. And it's just as tender and moist as it can be on the inside. And it, it's huge. I mean, it's make, made I, such I, a big I, difference. I'm, and I know that you've, you've told people about it, and they still haven't done it, right? I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know why they resist. And you know, pe- there are some people that just don't understand the concept of brining and why we brine. But we're telling them that right now. You do it because you're. I, I'm. I'm. You know. I, I told you I'm the cooking editor for DU Magazine. Mm-hmm. I don't cook a duck or a goose without soaking it in brine for at least twelve hours. Yeah. Um. We lose a lot of people when they see any kind of juice in a duck or a deer or whatever, and they go, "I just don't like to see that blood." And it's not blood, but when you put the brine in there, it's going to eliminate whatever blood or bloody juices are in there, and it's going to replace it with brine, and it's going to be a milder-tasting bird that's going to be more moist. It's going to have better flavor, but you haven't compromised the natural flavor of the animal at all. Mm-hmm. You're not covering it up with some dark, overpowering marinade and wrapping it in bacon and saying, wow, this is so good, it doesn't even taste like turkey anymore. Right. It still tastes like turkey, but it tastes like a, a taste better than an unbrined turkey. Yeah, yeah. That drives me crazy. How it's like mixing cola with liquor. <laughs> I just like heard that liquor. on the plane the other day. Yeah, a guy yeah. ordered a, a what uh, some kind of scotch with uh, it was scotch with a diet coke. I'm thinking, really? Yeah. Are you sure you want to do that? You don't like scotch. <laughs> I mean, that's right. really what it boils down to. It's it's the same thing you, with coffee. Drink something else. You know, right. it drives me crazy to see people take. And I don't drink coffee, but it drives me crazy to see people take coffee and pour a half a gallon of creamer in it. Dump, uh, hazelnut creamer, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Dump 87 packets of sugar and top it off with some whipped cream. I'm like, you don't like coffee. You you don't you don't like <laughs> coffee, right? If you're doing all this Makes stuff. Sense. You don't like it. So don't don't cover up the taste of these animals that we're cooking scott is dead on with that and you know i agree with you uh that that runs me crazy there so do you typically brine use the same brine no matter how you're preparing your turkey you're using half a cup of coarse or kosher salt and half a cup of brown sugar all the time no matter how you're preparing that bird you know, pretty much, and but I'll also, but I'll use the high mountain products a lot, and then I'll, if I'm, if I'm making my own brine, I'll throw in some dry Italian seasoning, maybe a little garlic powder, um, something that will 
carry those flavors through, but it's again, they're, it's not going to, it's not going to overpower them. Mm-hmm. You can add seasonings. If I wanted to add, make it a little spicy, I can put a little bit of cayenne pepper in there. Just don't dilute it with other liquids, but you can add other dry seasonings to give your brine more flavor. There's people that make their own brine mixes all the time that have peppercorns and all that stuff in it. And it's great. It's going to give it flavor. It's going to be subtle. And so feel free to create your own brine. Just keep that Keep that half cup of coarse salt to a half gallon of water or one gallon to a cup, if that's easy to remember. Keep that ratio the same, and then you can go ahead and add whatever dry ingredients you want. Okay. And then my last question for you about brine is this. We keep saying kosher salt or coarse salt, and that's not the same as table salt. What is the difference? Uh, The table salt is a much finer grind. So if you can picture, if you put a bunch of ping pong balls together, as opposed to basketballs, there's a lot more airspace in between those basketballs than there is in the ping pong balls. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a bucket full of ping pong balls and a bucket full of ba- basketballs, there's a lot more airspace in the basketball. So if you use table salt, I've, on a, for a gallon of water, I'm going to use about three quarter, two-thirds to three-quarter cup of table salt, fine grind salt. Otherwise, your brine is going to be way too salty. Um, I like, that's why, I mean, you, for two bucks, you can buy a big box of kosher salt, which I have in the kitchen anyway. Um, and, and so, but all, if all you have is table salt and you want to, and you want to do a brine today for a gallon of water, use about three quarters of a cup of table salt. Otherwise your brine's going to be way too salty. Okay. All right. I wanted to throw that out there because there is a, a difference and oh, yeah. yeah, we don't want, um, we don't want anybody having their lips pucker up after they taste that bird because the brine was too salty. Yeah, the, the bird tasted okay, but it was really salty, and I ended up drinking 12 beers to go with it. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that second part. <laughs> well, depends on what you if you got work to do. Well, you're right about that. You're right about that. Now, are there some spices that just always work well with wild turkey? You know, I use black pepper and garlic or garlic salt. Or you know, if I'm brining, I don't use any other salt when I get ready to prepare the turkey. I, it's it's right. salted enough, so I'll use garlic powder, which I'd rather much rather use fresh garlic. But here we are. So I'm using, regardless, I'm using, are there any other spices that just jump out at you and say, Andy, you need to be using this all the time? You know, I use a, a lot of dry herbs if I'm putting it on a rub early. Um, and if, or if I'm doing a marinade with it, you know, after I've brined it, um, I will typically give mine a rub with salt, pepper, garlic, maybe a little onion powder. Um, some that just Italian seasoning is going to give it a different dimension. Um, I just don't like to bury it with, again, the, the, the marinades that are, that all taste like a combination of Worcestershire and right. kerosene. So, you know, I, I, it kind of depends, you know, if you're, if you feel like you want to do something kind of a Southwestern flavor, then I'm going to add some, some Southwestern seasonings or some Cajun spice. It, nothing is, unless you're going to, unless you really want to overpower that turkey and you just don't like to taste a wild turkey, any of the seasonings work well. Um, any of the seasoning blends that you like work well. Um, I, you know, lemon flavors, lime flavors, are gonna. It's like an M, natural MSG, and it really livens up the palate and brings out the flavor of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's you know, turkey's really, really lean. Wild turkey's very lean compared to a domestic bird. So you just want to make sure you don't want to oversalt it. You don't want to dry it out. And again, if you brine it, 
you really don't need to add any salt to the outside either. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a big deal because, again, we don't want it so salty that your lips pucker up. Like I said, it's just we don't want to ruin those. We work hard to get turkey and clean it. You know, cleaning them is not always the easiest thing in the world either. But right. we do all that work, and we want it to turn out right. And having a bird that's too salty is just as bad as overcooking to me. Yep. Let's talk about cooking some turkey now. So what is the most simple, most delicious way, in your opinion, to cook wild turkey? You know, we're we're all short on time these days. Get home from work, and it's a matter of throwing something on the grill or throwing something in the oven. But what is the easiest way to do that? And, and and really least amount of time as well. you have any good quick recipes for well, us? Well, assuming that you your turkey's been brining during the day, you get home, you pat it dry, um, a bottle of Italian dressing, the one that we've heard about for years and years and years, that's in your refrigerator door, put, that, put your turkey in a Ziploc bag with that Italian dressing. And again, I'm going to butterfly it. I'm going to make it half the thickness of that turkey. That way, the marinade is going to penetrate farther because marinades only penetrate so deep inside of any piece of meat. Mm-hmm. But if you make it half as thick, the marinade is going, to, is going to be that much more and that much more surface area. Leave it in there for an hour. Slap it onto a hot grill until it gets about 145, 150 degrees on the inside. Let it rest for a few minutes. Right now, with tomatoes in season... I would take some fresh tomato, basil, maybe a little bit of capers, and just put that right on top of that turkey and a big squeeze of lemon or lime on top of it. And you're, mm. you really don't need to do any more to it. Yeah. It's almost lunchtime here. I'm starting to get hungry. I should have timed, timed this interview a little bit better with you and done it after uh, breakfast or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds good. So, butterflying the turkey breast, are you only butterflying the thickest part of that breast and then opening that up and leaving the thin part down at the end of the breast thin? What I do is I I put it down on a flat surface and I'm going to start on the, I normally start on the thinnest side, the the narrowest side, and and I'm going to slide, I'm going to run the knife basically all the way through towards that, the thickest part. And then I'm going to stop before I go all the way through and open it up like a book. Okay. And and then I'm going to press down on that thick part in the center. I'm going to press down on it. Even if you just pound it flat a little bit so that it's all relatively the same thickness, it's going to cook a lot more evenly. And, you know, some people like the kind of crunchy ends. I like, you know, whether it's a salmon or turkey, I kind of like those little burnt crispy ends on the side. Yeah. So when you get to the thinner part, it's to me it's okay if it's a little bit on the dry side and a little bit charred. Mm. You just don't want to do that to the whole to the whole yeah. breast. Yeah. But that's that's how you butterfly it. If you end up just cutting all the way through and just having two pieces that are basically the same size, that's okay too. It does the same thing. But by butterflying them, you can actually stuff a bunch of things on the inside, and if we get to that, we do. Okay. All right. So we talked about the quickest way of cooking one, the most simple way of cooking one, and that's pretty pretty easy. What is your favorite way to prepare wild turkey? You know, I'm kind. Of, I like to stuff those wild turkey breasts, and if we if we start with one that we butterflied and kind of pounded a little bit and flattened it out. There's lots of things you can put on the inside. I'm, I'm not sure what we talked about before, if it was blue cheese or whatever, but let's take, look, so let's saute a bunch of mushrooms mm-hmm. and, and with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off 
and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides. If you want to put a little cheese in there, either some gorgonzola cheese or some Parmesan cheese, and then sprinkle some breadcrumbs over that cheese, because what that's going to do is keep the cheese from running out when it's done. Then you just roll that whole thing up and roll it up really snugly, tie it with some string or put some skewers in there to hold it together. Brown it in an oven-safe skillet on all sides. Pop it into a 375-degree oven for about eight or nine minutes to finish cooking it all the way through. Take it out and let it rest. After it's rested, you can remove the string or pull the skewers out, cut it into these medallions, and you're going to have this, like, you know, it'll look really cool because it's going to have that look of a stuffed rolled piece of meat in there. Yeah. And then I'd make a very simple pan sauce, and that pan that the turkey was cooking in, put that up on the stovetop, Put a little white wine in there to deglaze all the little bits and pieces that stuck to it. Mm-hmm. Whisk in a little bit of butter, maybe again some tomato, some fresh herbs, and then just drizzle that right over the top of your rolled and stuffed turkey breast. Holy cow. It's a good one. It's not, and it's really easy to make. That, I mean, it yeah. really, it, it, it doesn't take much to do that. That doesn't sound like it would take any longer, really, than the other recipe that you gave us, the easy one with the uh-uh. dressing. No, and if, and if you say, well, I don't like mushrooms, well, put something else in there. You know, if I've got, I, right now, I've, I'm, in my refrigerator, i got Brussels sprouts. Mm-hmm. I could chop up some Brussels sprouts with some cheese and a little breadcrumb in there and put those on the inside of my wild turkey breast, and it would be great. If you wanted to wrap the whole thing with either prosciutto or bacon afterwards and get it that bacon nice and crispy on the outside, you know, that's not going to be bad either, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> right. Uh, and that's that's definitely not yeah and if you wanted to make it spicy put a little jalapeno in the center you know it's your turkey but there's lots of things you can do with it besides putting it in a crock pot with a can of cream of mushroom soup or cutting it up into strips and frying it or doing the standard jalapeno cream cheese bacon wrap yeah yeah which is good it it is good you know those poppers are always good yeah there's nothing wrong with those but again you know we we do want to mix things up a little bit get a little variety in our diet so yeah that's well and that's my job is to give alternative recipes right otherwise if we're all just going to do that jalapeno bacon wrap thing well there's no need for me i can i can go fishing now yeah yeah now are any of those recipes on your website Tons of recipes on the sportingchef.com website. Okay. And I encourage people, excuse me, you find a recipe that you like and you say, well, that's, I don't, I don't, I don't happen to like artichokes. Well, don't put any artichokes in. Make it your own. Recipes should be outlines. And for people that have to follow recipes all the time, stick to baking. The way you're going to learn how to cook is by making mistakes and by not measuring everything and adjust at the end. You know, unless you're way oversalted or way overcooked, most things you can adjust at the end and go, oh, well, okay, it just needs a little of this or a little of that, and it's just fine. Or next time, I'm going to add a little of this, and I'm going to try it this way. But cooking is, an, is in a form of expression. It, to me, uh, cooking is not a science unless you get into the, to the baking thing, which is right. why I don't bake. You know, bakers are it's a, bakers are different. I work with them all the time. Pastry chefs, um, they they, they got to measure stuff. I don't. I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I just want to throw stuff in a pan. Yeah, 
my wife prints a lot of recipes off the internet and if i went through her little folder with all the recipes of things that she has cooked and likes and she's kept the recipes every single one of those pages has something some little note that she's made add this or take right. this out or, that. don't sure. use as much you know don't use a half a cup use a quarter cup of this and and yeah she's always tinkering and i i think that's really well, she loves food, period. So that's why she loves right. to cook. But I think it gives her a chance to, to, you know, make things her own, just like you said, and, and really get creative in the kitchen. And so. And just because yeah. I like it one way doesn't mean that I'm right. You know, you watch the Food Network and the latest, latest and greatest things are all competition. Right. So you've got three or four people telling you whether your food is fit to eat or not. And um, I, I don't think food should be a competition. I think food should be learning and it should be fun and it should be experimental. And, you know, the food competition thing I find kind of annoying. I'd rather people learn how to do stuff and share ideas rather than being judged on whether their food is what they prepared in 20 minutes with ingredients they've never seen. Um, to me, that's not really cooking. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Very good. So, all right. I've I've been trying this and I've not had much luck. Now I have not made any soup stock. I usually leave the soups to my lovely bride and let her cook that. So I've not cooked any. I haven't tried any legs. You know, using using turkey legs for soup stock. But I'm still having difficulty with thighs and coming up with a, a recipe that is tasty and where the thighs don't come out tough. Can you point me in the right direction to at least work with some thighs to start with and then throw something out there for me on these legs? Well, the thighs, you can, the thighs are good. We can make the thighs work. You've got to go low and slow. There's no way to cook a turkey thigh, a wild turkey thigh, quickly. Um, it's going to take several hours. Um, are you familiar with sous vide cooking? I'm not. So sous vide, and it's spelled S-O-U-S, that's one word, and then V-I-D-E, sous vide. Is that one of them French words? It's it's one of them French words. (laughs) Yes, sir. So what it does is, and it means cooking in water or something like that. So you take your wild turkey thighs and you season them, and you put them in a food saver bag. Mm-hmm. Or you put them in a Ziploc bag where you've squeezed as much of the air out as you can. And there's this, there's these units that are anywhere from $100 to several hundred dollars. ANOVA, A-N-O-V-A makes one that's about 120 bucks, I think, on Amazon. What it does is it circulates warm water around. You can put it in anything. You can get a cooler or a, a big pot, and it hooks onto that pot, mm-hmm. and it circulates warm water at a specific temperature. So for a wild turkey thigh, I'd put my seasoned thighs in this bag of water, and it's and I'm going to set it for 140 degrees, and it's never going to go beyond 140 degrees, and it's just going to sit there and circulate at 140 degrees because that's what it's going to take, 140, 145 degrees, to break down the sinew in those turkey legs. Mm-hmm. It's going to sit in this water bath for about eight hours. And the thing is, it's not going to overcook because it's never going to get beyond 140 to 145 degrees, Yeah. right? So um, after what it doesn't do, though, is it won't brown them. So you want to you get it until it just gets to that critical point where the connective tissue breaks down, the sinew breaks down. Then you fire up a grill or a hot cast iron skillet and brown it on the outside, and you will be amazed at how tender those thighs are. Wow. And you've seen turkeys run. I mean, their thighs, oh, those yeah. thighs are not like chicken thighs, right? They're, they're tough and lean, 
And this sous vide will break them down. Sometimes it might take 10 or 12 hours to break it down, but it's gonna. Um, there's no piece of meat that I know of that this sous vide will not eventually get tender. It's because it just basically is this warm circulating water around the outside. And, you know, I've, I've taken, I've done chicken wings in it. I did ribs in it. Now, baby back ribs, you're thinking, now, why are you doing that? Because they're tender anyway. I did it as an experiment, put it, seasoned it, put it into a vacuum bag, and then did the sous vide thing. So remember, the water doesn't touch the meat. It's in the vacuum bag. Mm-hmm. And these baby back ribs came out about half, again, as big and thick as they normally are. And they were fall off the bone tender. I just had to brown them on the outside. And people are going, these aren't baby backs. These are dinosaur ribs. If you take a steak, you take a deer steak or a, a honker breast, which is not known for their tenderness. Right. And you season that honker breast and you put it in that sous vide and let it sit in there for about six to eight hours. It's like butter. You don't even know it's a honker breast. And you get it, and I'll do that at about 128 degrees, and then leave room to brown it on the outside. And and it's 128 degrees from top to bottom. It's not like when you take a steak and put it on a grill, and it's well done on the outside where it's charred Mm -hmm. to get to the medium rare part on the inside. From top to bottom, it's exactly the same temperature all the way through. So that works great for those turkey thighs. If, if you don't feel like doing that, you can cook them, you can braise them. You brown them, put them either into a skillet or into a roasting pan, put some liquid in there. It can be a can of beer, chicken stock, don't care. I need about an inch of liquid in there. Throw some vegetables in there also. Cover it up with foil or a lid. Put it into a low temp oven, about 300 degrees for at least six hours. And eventually you'll be able, the meat's going to pull right off those turkey thighs. If it's not... If it's not tender, you just need to make sure there's enough liquid in there, pop it back in the oven, and go mow the lawn and give it a little bit more time. It'll get there. Okay. The drumsticks, the the legs, on the other hand, you know, you can cook those for a long time and still beat somebody over the head with them. They're pretty tough. Mm -hmm. But, But they're great for making stock. So when you've got your turkey carcass, you've got the leftover bones, you roast everything, you throw it into a stock pot, with some cold water and some vegetables and some, you know, herbs and rosemary and that kind of thing. And you just bring it to almost a boil and then turn the heat down to low, let it simmer all night long, pour it through a colander lined with cheesecloth to get the big chunks out, and you're going to have a really, really delicious wild turkey stock. You'll be able to shred some of the meat off that off those legs, but for the most part, you're, I use it to flavor stock. Okay. All right. So... The meat that you that you can shred off those legs is just what's coming off of there easily with a fork. Yep. Okay. Otherwise, yeah. I mean, if, yeah. You, and it really, when it's done, it'll come off real easy, and you'll get around all those sinewy, all the ligaments and things that are in there. You know, the same thing with a pheasant. With a pheasant leg too, you run into the same problem. Um, if that's why I just never cook a whole bird. It just right. doesn't make sense. Yeah. It, it, they look really good in a photograph, but it's pointless to cook a whole wild turkey or a pheasant or a duck for that matter, because they require different parts of the bird require different kinds of cooking. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. And what are the odds, unless it's 4th of July or Labor Day or Memorial Day, that we're going to have enough people around to eat a whole turkey anyway? (laughs) Right. So, yeah, I agree with you. So I want to ask you this, and if you have no experience doing it, that's fine. I can always cut it out. But if you do, I'm just a little bit curious because... Bone broth is 
kind of, I can't say it's, it's the rage now because it's been around forever and ever, but it's more and more popular now, especially with people who are having stomach ailments or stomach issues, that kind of thing. And they'll go on some sort of a bone broth diet or even drink bone broth, eight to 12 ounces of bone broth every day. And so we, we talked about the soup stock, and really that's no different than a bone broth. But I think what they're trying to do with the bone broth is to really get as much of the nutrients and minerals and everything out of all that sinew and cartilage and, and all that stuff. And is is there are you familiar with making a bone broth and do you have to cook it longer than you would just a soup stock? I mean, is there a difference there at all? Well, to me, a good, a good bone broth is, I mean, and it's kind of a paleo thing now, too. Mm-hmm. It is, the victory is when you get all that collagen out of the bones, mm-hmm. um, and it's and when it cools, you'll notice it looks like jello. Right. Right? After it's been reduced, and you've clarified it, you've poured it through cheesecloth or through paper towels or whatever, um, and then you, you kind of let it sit, and what I normally do is skim off whatever's on the top, on the bottom, there's still a little bit of sediment that's settled, but and then I put it in the refrigerator. The next morning, I go to get it, and it's solid, mm-hmm. and that's from the collagen that's in there. To me, that's the victory. That's the bone broth. That's where the nutrients are. That's If you read any of the paleo stuff, that's what they're looking for. They want that gelatinous um, collagen from the bone marrow. Mm-hmm. And whether it's deer bones, beef bones, wild turkey bones, that's what you're going to get if you do it the right way and you take your time, you're not going to get that out of a bouillon cube or a can of, of chicken broth. Yeah. You got to make it yourself and there's got to be a lot of bones in there. That's where the, that's where you get that gelatinous collagen that comes out of it. It's got to come from the bone marrow. Okay. All right. So that's going to cook a lot longer than what you're going to make a soup stock. Yeah, you can, you can make a quick soup stock, but you're basically doing the same thing. You're just using, because you're using the whole carcass, you're using the bones that are left over where you've pulled the meat off. You've got those leg portions in there. Um, and really, my biggest deal is I want people to stop resting out their wild turkeys and throwing the rest of the bird away. Yeah. Because the rest of the bird is so much better than that can of cream of, of can of chicken stock that you're going to use. And you're using the whole animal. It's part of being a responsible turkey hunter is to use the whole bird. And the benefit is you're going to have this delicious broth, delicious stock that you can eat just a bowl of or make a sauce with it or make a soup or a stew or whatever. And the flavor is going to be so much better, so much more intense and so much more natural than something out of a can or a cube. Very good. So I've got a new to-do list for turkey season next year. So I'm, I'm inching forward on this. And, you know, years ago, I would just get the breast and that was it. And I had someone tell me, get those thighs out of there. Well, this guy used the thighs and he didn't use the legs. And then, right. so I started getting thighs out. And then, you know, a couple of people are saying, no, you got to use the, the legs for soup stock. And so I'm getting breast and thighs and legs. And now I need to be using, when I pull those off, I need to take the rest of that carcass and throw it in a pot and make some stock and, and even some bone broth out of it. So yeah, I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> well, and the thing is, you know, you can, you can save those legs and thighs and 
and carcasses and kind of crunch them down and put them in your freezer if you got a, enough room in the garage freezer. Mm-hmm. And then you can make just a giant batch of stock all in one day. Right. And then af- after you got it, then you put it in either Ziploc bags or ice cube trays or whatever, and you freeze it. And whenever you need it, I mean, I've got little containers of all sorts of game broth all over my freezer in the garage. And so that's what I do. I Whenever I make a big batch of it, I'm going to freeze it in smaller parts. So whenever I need it, I got it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, a great way to do it. So are you using those game stocks to cook that particular game or are you mixing some of those up? Would you doesn't use doesn't matter. Okay. You know, right now it's kind of clean out your freezer season. So true. if you've got different kinds of game in your freezer, there's no reason why you can't make a game stock. Let's say if you've got some, some deer, you got a, you might have a couple of rabbits, you might have a turkey or two. You want to make a kind of a wild game stock out of all of those animals because you maybe don't have enough of any one animal. It'll make a great game stock. It'll make a great combination game stock. You can pull the meat off, make a great batch of stew out of it, and clear some room in your freezer for the incredible harvest that you're going to have this year. Got to be like optimistic, your, right? I like your attitude. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to have, I'm going to shoot so many deer this year that I'm, I better clean out that freezer right now so I got a place to put all this stuff. You're right. If we don't go out with that attitude, then why would we even go out? Well, and if you've got stuff that you've been moving around your freezer for the last three or four years, it's time to eat it anyway. It's not getting any better. True. Even if it's vacuum sealed. It doesn't matter. I mean, it just doesn't get, you know, even my vacuum sealed fish that I vacuum seal, I eat within three months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've always, well, not always, but my bass, I'll take those and freeze them in water, in a Ziploc bag right. full of water, and that seems yep. to keep it from getting freezer burned. Yep. Yeah, there's... It does take up a little bit more space in your freezer, though. And Much then, more. If you're going to have a freezer full, I would highly recommend getting a vacuum sealer. Yeah. And the problem is, with the vacuum sealer, we, we could make a whole other show about how to vacuum stuff, but let me give you one tip. If you've had a problem with your vacuum sealer because the stuff's too moist and you're not able to get a good seal, take your duck breast or your fish or whatever it is, put it on a sheet pan that's lightly sprayed with pan spray, and freeze it first and then vacuum seal it, and it will be super tight and really snug, and you don't have the liquid seeping through. Oh, very good. I like those tips. There you go. Yeah. So that's the tip that we're going to take to the house right there, and I'm going to tell you that we've been almost an hour, and I greatly appreciate your time. I could, I'm sure, keep you on the phone all day long, but I know you've got better things to do than to spend that much time with me on the phone talking about this stuff. But I really do appreciate it. It's always great having you on the show, and I've learned something. I've learned a new French term now, so <laughs> uh, I'm going to be running around the house saying sous vide all the time. Don't and, start getting all, all uppity on everybody with oh, your new uh, French word. I now. have to. I have to. Well, I know how to speak French fluently. <laughs> there you go. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. Now I can throw out sous vide, and people, my friends are going to be blown away at how cultured I am. <laughs> oh, they'll. I think they'll know. Mm-hmm. They'll I'll, see. They might be able to. They'll see through it. They know you. I'll start drinking champagne and having my pinky out when I drink it. So uh, I can pick. I can picture it now. <laughs> at, the, at the hunting camp, obviously, right. dressed in full camo right. and rubber boots. Got to got to class it up, Scott. Thank you very much. I really do appreciate it, and and it's been a learning experience for me, and I'm sure that everyone that's going to listen to this show is going to learn a lot as well. And 
you're right in what you said. We we need to use as much of the of all the game animals, not just the wild turkeys, but of all the game animals that we kill. And you know, making a bone broth is a great way to do something with that bone and that hindquarter of a of a deer or elk that we're normally just going to throw out and feed the coyotes with. So, sure. you know, even even doing things like that is is a big help and a big deal, and it helps us with our cooking down the line. So that's awesome. We'll do it again. I greatly appreciate it, and I will take you up on that. You may regret hearing from me before too long <laughs> with that with that request. So we'll always jump on always good talking to you, man. Anytime, you as well. Thank you very much. Have a great afternoon. All right, you too. All right, goodbye. Sue Vide. I'm ordering one tonight, and thanks to Amazon Prime, I should be cooking some delicious wild turkey via sous vide before the weekend. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview half as much as I did, because that interview right there has jumped right on into my top 10 favorite interviews. You can really hear the passion for cooking wild game in Scott's voice, and I will assure you that that passion he has comes out in his cooking as well. Great stuff. And I said it in the interview, and I'll say it now. If you guys ever get the opportunity to go to one of Scott's demos or tastings that he does, go. You will not regret that. If you like food and you like wild game, it will blow your mind at how quickly he prepares them, how easily he prepares them, how readily available the ingredients are that he uses to prepare the wild game, and how tasty everything is. So, that is it. That's all that I have for you guys this week. But before I let you go, you know I am going to ask you for a favor. And the favor this week is this. I just got through semi-bad-mouthing Facebook. But, if you will, go onto Facebook and tag a friend in this week's post for the show. I would greatly appreciate that. If you would, go onto Twitter and find the post on Twitter for this week's show and tag a friend on that, I would be much appreciative as well. And of course, I'll always take the retweets of the post for this week's show on Twitter and the shares on Facebook for this week's post for the show as well. I really do appreciate you guys and how much you are willing to help the show out and to share these episodes with your friends and hunting buddies. And with that, I'm signing off. I am going to get high on a boom lift. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.